0: do you like to keep score? Do you like to keep score? As the kids were even running out, I was reminded back in kindergarten, it was easy to keep score of how many times I was the line leader, right? You, you probably remember the same thing. How many times you were line leader and how ma- maybe how many times another person was line, line leader. And if they were line leader more times than you, you felt an injustice, a great injustice. Teacher, it's my turn He's done it way too many times, or she has done it way too many times, and so we keep score. This happens uh, when we play sports. Um, I don't know if you play pickleball, but most likely uh, you keep score in that because you want to win the game. You may be the person who says, I am counting every single point, and if the person I'm playing is one point off, I'm gonna correct them, because that point could be the match. Um, I know at home this even can happen, where uh, you do the dishes a couple times, and the spouse doesn't do it a couple times in a week, and so you feel justified to just not do anything. You don't say anything, but you just let it go, and then they don't touch it because you've been in the role of doing it, and so <laughs> they assume that you're going to do it, and it builds up, and next thing you know, you have mold and maggots, uh. Not speaking from experience here. <laughs> um, I, I love basketball. Uh, so back to sports, this happens when you play pickup up ball. You, you, there's always somebody who's keeping score to make sure they know who's gonna win, and then there's other people who are just keeping their own personal stats. We like to keep score, it's easy to keep score of things that are valuable to us, right? And so as we look at our text today, we'll notice that there are actually situations in life where it's actually not wise to keep score, especially for the sake of our relationships. Now, before we get very far into our text, we must notice that we are parachuting in on the coattails of a conversation that Jesus has been having with his disciples, specifically talking about what it looks like to correct a brother or sister when they have wronged you. Back in verse 15, we start to see from 15 to 20, in this chapter, Jesus lays out a four-step process to uh, what to do if someone has wronged another person. The four steps are this. One, go privately, tell the person, hey, you've sinned against me. Tell them their sin against you. If they don't listen, then two, take one or two others with you and go and tell them that they have wronged you. If they don't listen, then take the matter to the church. And if they don't listen, then and you are to treat them as an unbeliever, which means that you are to plead with them to be reconciled to God. This process is a process for being reconciled to one another. But at the end, if a person is not reconciled to, or going to be reconciled to someone else, you have to plead with them. Be reconciled to God. But an important note on verse 15 should be made. Jesus says there, if he listens to you, You have gained your brother. This means that all corrective church discipline is restorative in nature. The goal is restoration, and that restoration is centered around forgiveness. The goal is that we might gain back our brother or sister. In this, we are to pursue forgiveness and to be reconciled to one another. This is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart of forgiveness, that Jesus desires for his people to have. Today, we're gonna look at what forgiveness is. The truth hidden in plain sight today is forgiveness. We're gonna look at where it comes from and what happens if we deny it to others. And we won't be able to touch everything that relates to forgiveness. There's a lot, but we're gonna talk about what our text talks about. And so what we see in our our text today and our outline is simple. It's two points The first point that we'll see is forgiveness overflows with compassion and two, unforgiveness drowns in condemnation. Forgiveness overflows with compassion and unforgiveness drowns in condemnation. So let's dive into our first point and section of our passage this morning. So number one, the heart of forgiveness overflows with compassion. After Jesus explains that his people are to be a forgiving and reconciling people, Peter seems to immediately jump in and ask Jesus, well, how many times am I supposed to permit forgiveness? Um, In his words, he might've said, Jesus, how many times am I supposed to do this whole like step one, step two, three, four thing before I finally just like let the person go? And stop forgiving these knuckleheads out here. You could even hear him say, I want to be reasonable. So, so how many times, Jesus? And then he prompts Jesus with a number, the number seven, thinking that surely Jesus would approve this number. Yes, Peter, that sounds great. This brings us to our first of three principles of how to cultivate this heart of forgiveness that overflows with compassion. It's this: don't keep score. Don't keep score. We've already established that some people like to keep score, though. <laughs> so let's read verses 21 to 22 together. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, Do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, before we condemn Peter uh, for his brash comment or seemingly brash comment, the common rabbinical of, uh, teaching of the day that Peter grew up learning as a Jew was that you were supposed to forgive at least three times and then you had permission to never forgive again. And so three times was the limit. Three strikes and you're out was quite literally the common practice of the day. And so Peter attempting to be generous in his forgiveness says well let me bump it up to another religiously significant number the number 7 so 7 the number 7 is understood within the bible to be a number of completeness there are 7 days of creation 7 candlesticks on the golden lampstand in the temple there are seven times that Israel walks around the city of Jericho before it falls, and seven times Naaman dunked in the Jordan River before he was healed and given new skin. Seven was a good number, and it was a number that Jesus himself actually used. Peter very may well have been recounting Jesus' words in Luke 17:4. and look at that With me, where Jesus is talking about forgiving a brother, says, If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So, Jesus could have even been remembering what Jesus said and said, How about seven times, Jesus? How does Jesus respond? Well, in verse 22, he says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Basically, uh, not quite Peter. Maybe you've heard the translation um, or you have a translation where the word times is actually in between the 70 and the seven. To be honest, it doesn't quite make much of a difference where that times goes. That 70 times seven would then equal out to 490. And you know that seems like a really high number. But again, it doesn't really matter because what Jesus does here is he takes seven, multiplies it by 10, which both numbers in the Bible are numbers of completeness. And then he adds another seven to it. So whether they're multiplied by each other or they are 77, what Jesus does is he says, hey, forgiveness that I'm looking for, the heart of forgiveness is completeness times completeness with an extra measure of completeness on the end. Seven times 10 plus seven is what I'm expecting. And this is a heart that is overflowing with forgiveness. Seemingly, though, Peter wants to put a limit on it. A generous limit, nonetheless, but he wants to close the lid on forgiveness at a certain point. Higher point than the Pharisees, but still he wants to close the lid. And so Peter bumps the number up to seven. Still an easy number to remember, though. Three and seven. If Our goal is to forgive someone until we don't have to forgive them anymore and then maybe take revenge out on them because I don't have to forgive them. Number seven is still within view. You can remember the number three and the number seven. And so if revenge is in your line of sight, what kind of a heart of forgiveness can you really show? If you are supposed to be overflowing with forgiveness and you have a limit on your forgiveness until you take out revenge, forgiveness is not forgiveness. So Jesus takes the number up to 77, not so that we can make a checklist up to the number 78 and once that brother or sister hits 78, boom, hit them with your wrath. That's not what Jesus is after. One pastor from the 1920s I really like what he said he says jesus asserted that forgiveness is not cheese pairing arithmetic but an overflowing spirit we're not supposed to take out the block of cheese set it down and start pairing out okay and once once i've given you this much forgiveness then my wrath is coming i will seek justice fully on you so that you can feel the effect of your sin It's not Jesus' desire for us to count how many times we forgive, but to forgive with full measure, indefinitely. So do not keep a score. This is the first description of the heart of forgiveness. It does not keep score. The second principle of how to cultivate a heart of forgiveness is this, to receive forgiveness. To receive forgiveness. Forgiveness. So do not keep score and receive forgiveness. Here we'll actually spend a little bit of extra time. Now, this may seem a little bit odd. How to me cultivate a heart of forgiveness to receive forgiveness? Well, let's look back at our parable beginning in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. Now let's pause right there and notice the first couple of details of this parable. <clears throat> first, the main characters in this parable are a king and his servants, and there are debts that the king is making is attempting to reconcile. In verse 35, if you look at the end, Jesus actually tells us who these characters are. The the king represents the heavenly father. Look there in verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, without reading into the meaning of that verse for the moment, we'll come back and, and do so here in a little bit, we see that the king symbolizes God the father, Now, Jesus distinguishes him as the heavenly father here in order to highlight what kind of issue Jesus is dealing with or he's talking to. And that's most immediately a family issue. Now, not your biological family or your club soccer family or your college football fandom family. This is your new family in Jesus. This is your new family, the church remember that this parable shows up right after the church discipline section that we see so clearly. And in many ways, Jesus tells this parable to explain how this new family is supposed to function when wrongs are done between the brothers and sisters in the family. So the king represents the heavenly father. The servants symbolize the And here in verse 35, the yous and the your brother, which refer to those who are disciples of Jesus, those who profess to be disciples of Jesus and are members of this new family. And the debts represent, then, the amount of offenses done against the offended. When we offend God or any other person, that in in the Bible is normally called sin, Remember back in verse 15 of this chapter, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. As Jesus was instructing his uh, followers uh, in how to pray, Jesus says in Matthew 6, he guides us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also forgiven our debtors. Now, there's no way to uh, take out a financial line of credit with God so that's obviously not what he's referring to. Jesus explains immediately following the Lord's prayer his comments on forgiveness in it when he says in verse 14 read that with me for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you. So there is forgiveness that is needed between family members but there's a forgiveness that's needed before one can even enter the family and that forgiveness is not cheap and so Let's look back at our text and and ask the question, well, how much do we need to be forgiven? Look at verse 24. When he began began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. The quick answer we find in this passage, the amount of debt that we need to be forgiven is 10,000 talents worth. (laughs) And you may be sitting there and saying, okay, what's a talent? I have a couple talents. A couple skills, funny. No, that's not the talents here. The talent is a, is a uh, measure of currency. And at this time, a talent was the greatest amount of currency uh, in, in use. And so let's just take, a, a lot of you probably have a note in your Bible at the bottom of the page that says that a talent, a silver talent is worth about 20 years wages. So let's do some quick math here. An average salary in America that I've seen in the research that I've done is somewhere around 50 to 60,000, okay? So let's take the low end of that and see that a a silver talent today would be, uh, if we multiplied it by 20 years worth of that salary, that would be $1 million. So to a person who earns $50,000 a year, that's a big number. They're probably never gonna see that amount of money. Now multiply that by 10,000 talents, you would get $10 billion. Now, that's for a silver talent. And the NIV, it actually translates it as a bag of gold. And so this very well might have been a gold talent or 10,000 gold talents that Jesus is talking about, which a gold talent was about 30 times the amount of a silver talent. That means that if one talent, one silver talent, was 20 years worth of wages, a gold talent was 600 years worth of wages. That's a lot of money. A talent, so if you multiply that by 10,000, you get six million years worth of wages. It's a significant amount of money. Talent being the highest unit of currency at Jesus' time, and 10,000 being the highest Roman number at that time. The exaggerated point of this number is that the debt is essentially incalculable and irreconcilable by the servant you probably asking, well, how did this servant get a hold of that much money from this king to rack up this amount of debt? Well, this man is described in this text as kind of a vice regent or a vice president or a finance minister of sorts who worked in service of this king. And by racking and, sorry, embezzling, this amount of debt shows that he did not fear the king or love the king he will never be able to pay back his debt because it's 10,000 talents worth. And this is what our debt is described with God. It is incalculable and irreconcilable left to ourselves. We could never pay it back. It's not merely, though, incalculable because of how many times we sin each day, but it's because of who our offense is against. His offense was against the king And our offense is against God, a eternally holy God, which means that our sin against him incurs an eternal debt, no matter how many times we sin. Once is enough. And since we as finite beings could never pay our eternal and incalculable debt, it is just and right of God to condemn us. And so we must ask the question, what is just? So back at the parable, what does the king do? Let's look Verses 24 to 26. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, his wife, his children, and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. The king commits to recover some of the money by selling this man, his family, and his possessions. He commits to recover some of the money of the debt that this man incurred. Now, we should not take this to understand uh, that, that God will sell us in some way to someone in order to recover some debt that we have incurred him. That's not what this is telling us, but it does say to us, God will send us away to serve another master if we do not if we are not able to pay the debt or if we do not fall on our knees and repent of our sin debt and throw ourselves at his mercy. God is just to send us away. And so how much do we how much do we need to be forgiven 10,000 talents worth. What is just it's just for God to send us away. And that's uh, So we need to know how much have we been forgiven? How much do we need to be forgiven? 10,000 talents worth. Well, let's look and see. The servant, what he does is he desperately pleads for mercy and patience to pay back the debt. But both the king and the servant know this is an impossible feat. So look at verse 27. For the king's response, out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. So picture this. The king on his throne in his throne room gets up from his throne. Takes the steps down to floor level. Gets on this man's gets to this man's side. Puts his arm around him and says, "You're forgiven. Your debt is canceled. You're forgiven." Brothers and sisters, this is an apt description of Jesus' own coming down from heaven, becoming one of us, we begging for his mercy, and he comes down, wraps his arm around us and says, I am going to cancel your debt. I am going to forgive your sins through my work on the cross, I am going to give my life to pay for your sins, because we read in Romans that the wages of sin is death. So Jesus says, I'm going to take that for you. This is the picture of the gospel that we see here, the king coming down and saying, having pity, having compassion on him, becoming like him by kneeling on the floor. If you're sitting here this morning and you have never received forgiveness from your sins before God, I would encourage you to repent. Repent of your sin debt. Believe in Jesus for his work on the cross. Ephesians 1 verse 6, Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We receive forgiveness because of his blood that was poured out. I'd encourage you this week, jot this verse down our kids over in Kids Church are memorizing this and even an extended session or section of this passage. I encourage you, memorize this with them. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. If you're sitting here and you've been forgiven, you've confessed your sins and believed in Jesus' work to forgive you, can I encourage you to continue to confess your sins to him Daily. John would tell us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is fresh forgiveness to be experienced from our faithful forgiver. There is fresh forgiveness to be experienced by our faithful forgiver. It is difficult, though, to live in this received forgiveness. Our enemy wants us to believe that we are guilty of way too many sins, that our debt is way too great for us to pay. And he's right. And if we believe him, we will try to work to pay our sin debt. That's when we should remember the second verse to this beautiful hymn, Before the Throne of God Above, where the... Author writes, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's awesome. Jesus, thank you that because of your work, your merciful, forgiving work, our debt can be paid. Our 10,000 talents worth of debt can be paid. Our debt is canceled as we trust in the wrath-satisfying work of Jesus. So receive forgiveness. This is another way of cultivating a heart of forgiveness. The third and final way that we see Jesus teach the principle of cultivating a heart of forgiveness is to forgive as you have been forgiven. To forgive as you have been forgiven. And we skip down to verse 33 to see this. Read that with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you the forgiveness that we have received should overflow in forgiveness to others in our story the servant finds and takes revenge on another servant by condemning him which we'll look at further in as we get to our second section but the king calls this servant back to the throne room to have a few words after kneeling the last time they met and saying, you're forgiven. He calls him back after hearing about his unforgiveness and says, should you not have mercy on your fellow servant? So I had mercy on you. Servant, though he had received mercy, mercy, meaning that he did not receive what he justly deserved and in turn did not show mercy to someone else who had a sin debt against him a debt against him. King presumes that those who have actually opened themselves up to receive his mercy will in turn give mercy to fellow servants. If we have received mercy from our king, we should not think ourselves to be above him, to be maybe more important than him. That others who offend us, we... We should dole out the amount of judgment that is coming for them. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Therefore, we should allow our receiving of the Father's compassion to overflow into compassion of others. Receiving his mercy should overflow with mercy to others. Receiving his forgiveness should overflow with forgiveness. To others. So let me ask you are you quick to forgive? Or do you want people to suffer a little bit before you forgive them? Are you quick to receive God's forgiveness? Or do you want to suffer a little bit before you feel okay going to God and asking for His forgiveness? Do you believe that there's a limit on God's forgiveness? may be able to tell that you do if you've put a limit on somebody else's sins against you, if you have yourself believed that there's a limit on your forgiveness to someone else. When your spouse says something on the way home that really gets under your skin, or your child throws your phone into the toilet, again, not speaking from experience, or friends maybe exclude you from a special get-together? Will you be quick to forgive if they request it? C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. <laughs> now, this doesn't mean that forgiveness, final note here, that forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. This is why you don't, this is why maybe you don't want to forgive somebody because you, You view forgiveness and trust as the same thing, but you're called to forgive, though though you don't maybe have trust in that person quite yet. These are two separate things. You can forgive someone without trusting them. Maybe that frees one of you up to forgive somebody. You said, I'm holding it against them because I don't trust them yet. And once I do, then I'll forgive them. Brother or sister, That's not what we've been called to. We've been called to cultivate a heart of forgiveness that does not keep a record of wrongs, receives forgiveness from the Father, and forgives as you have been forgiven, overflowing with compassion towards those who have wronged you. So that's our first point this morning. Second part of our passage shows us that the heart of unforgiveness drowns in condemnation. The heart of unforgiveness drowns in condemnation. If we maintain a heart that keeps a record of wrongs done against us, we will drown in bitterness, anger, resentment, and wickedness. This is not the heart that simply is unable to forgive because the person hasn't come and asked for forgiveness. No, this is the heart that is unwilling to forgive no matter how many attempts to reconcile are made which brings us back to our main servant who has just received abundant mercy, the cancellation of an irreconcilable debt. So look back in your Bibles with me, starting in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. Oh, the unforgiving heart is a scorekeeping heart. We see in this passage that scorekeeping is four things. It's easy, it's prideful, it's wicked, and it will ultimately be condemned Let's look at each of those parts real quick. First, the unforgiving heart is easy. So let's, let's start with there. If we have a heart that is unwilling to forgive, keeping a record of others' wrongs against us, that will be easy because we remember things that are valuable to us. And if revenge on somebody is valuable to us, we will forgive just amount of times to where we can say, oh, okay, now I can pursue judgment and condemnation of them Um, a game I used to play with my dad we would get in the car and over the course of months we would count up the amount of Corvettes that we would see and the way that we would do this is if we saw a Corvette we would say yellow 25 and the first one to 100 got bragging rights that was it it wasn't anything special. But bragging rights, which meant it was valuable to me. And I think it was valuable to him. He didn't want to be beat by his seven-year-old. So he counted every single one that he saw. And as the driver, that was easier than for me in the way back seat. So um, I, we, we would play this over months. And we would remember our score because it was valuable to us to remember, okay, yellow 78 or red ninety. Five, And we had to remember and we had to get it out because if the other person actually said their um, number and color quicker than us, they got the point. So it's, it's easy to remember wrongs done against us because if, it, if we are recording wrongs by somebody else, there's only one reason we would do that, and it's revenge. What we see is a man who mercilessly takes revenge. He goes up, chokes the man, demanding that he pays what he owes. And it's easy to be merciless if we feel like we're justified. Have you experienced that? If someone has done enough wrong against you or someone you love and you've just had enough and you let loose your wrath, maybe it was a family member or a coworker or a waiter, It's easy to remember others' wrongs against us and we can be accurate, pretty accurate in others' wrongs against us. But when our wrongs against somebody else are brought up, eh, then we'll fudge the numbers a little bit. So we see a man who is merciless. It's easy to keep score. The unforgiving heart is not only easy, but it's also prideful. The unforgiving heart is prideful. Look back at verses 30 to 31 with me to see how this man responds to his fellow servant. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. This servant takes upon himself the authority of the king and places this man in prison. He considered the offense against himself to be worthy of this punishment, even though he had just been forgiven 10 million times the amount that this guy owed to him. To him, the servant is greater than the master. His pride has made him stone cold, compassionless, and ruthless. He was not he has not allowed mercy, the mercy and compassion of the king to affect his cold heart. And so he refuses to forgive the debt of his fellow servant. The spectating servants then, shocked by the ruthless response of the servant, go and inform the king, right, of the servant's proud and unforgiving actions. The king then chimes in on these actions by calling this unforgiving heart wicked, And that's our third description of an unforgiving heart. It's easy, it's prideful, and it is wicked. Let's read verses 32 to 33. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? To close off the overflow of forgiveness to a fellow servant is wicked. And the king calls it as such. So we see here the marks of this parable form where forgiveness is actually taken back. This isn't meant to directly correlate to God actually taking forgiveness of sins back. Because again, if Jesus has paid for sins and then we have to pay for them, that's a double jeopardy. That doesn't happen in God's economy. What is shown is that forgiveness, that the forgiveness that was offered by the king was not wholeheartedly received by the servant. It was not wholeheartedly received by the servant. Though he wanted to get a get out of debt free pass or for us a get out of hell free, he didn't want the heart of forgiveness that supplied that was supplied by the king's forgiveness. His heart was unwilling to forgive, showing his wickedness. The scorekeeping heart of unforgiveness will ultimately be condemned. That's the fourth thing we see about the unforgiving heart. It will ultimately be condemned. The master responds appropriately and justly to the servant's wicked attitude and actions by sentencing him to judgment. In verse 34, we read, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all his debt. The king had realized that his plea for mercy was half-hearted. He wanted mercy without accountability. He wanted to avoid judgment for himself, yet he wanted to send others to the judgment that he deserved. Ironically, his record keeping heart of unforgiveness received what it actually craved a record of debt to pay off. Did you catch that? His record keeping heart of unforgiveness received what it actually craved a debt that he could attempt to pay off. He was condemned by his own condemning heart. His unforgiveness proved his own lack of forgiveness from the king. Jesus makes sure to inform his disciples that this is what will happen to everyone who does not forgive from their heart. And in this, there's a mysterious link between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. Let's look at verse 35 again. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. A theme that is repeated over and over again in Scripture, especially the New Testament, is that if we forgive others their wrongs against us, we will be forgiven by God. But if we don't forgive others we will not be forgiven. There seems to be a one-to-one ratio between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. Now, this does not mean that our forgiveness of others actually earns God's forgiveness. No. But the heart of forgiveness will overflow with compassion towards brothers and sisters who wrong us. The heart of forgiveness, on the other hand, will drown in condemnation for those who are unwilling to forgive. You could look at it this way. Imagine... Two vats that represent your heart. And so we have one vat over here that is filled with kind of salt water and another vat over here that is filled with uh, sinking sand or, or, and so it's easy to fall in. So the heart over here that has kind of that salt water is being poured into by the Father and then overflows because there is no lid on the top. And so imagine your heart, you're actually being buoyed by the Father's own forgiveness of you, and then you're splashing that over and giving it to other people. But the heart of unforgiveness, this sinking sand heart, has a lid on top. It does not receive any of the Father's forgiveness, but it drowns your own self in a spirit of unforgiveness, and you will be condemned. These are the two examples that Jesus is describing here, that the heart of forgiveness overflows with compassion, but the heart of unforgiveness condemns. When you have received mercy, you are able to tip over and give away some of that forgiveness. Pastor David Platt, from McLean Bible Church in Virginia says this. The Bible is not saying it's easy to forgive or that it's natural to forgive. However, it's Christian to forgive. In fact, the Christian has no other option. We forgive not because we have to, but because in love we are compelled to. Also, oh, church, Parkside Bible Church, let's be a new family that practices what we have received. Let's be a Christian people who in love are compelled to forgive. And let's work together as we grow through relationships to cultivate hearts of forgiveness that beautifully display the forgiving heart of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray.